We'd like to thank LawPay for their support of this show. LawPay's online payment solution was developed specifically for lawyers to correctly separate earned and unearned fees so you can accept credit cards in compliance with ABA and IOLTA guidelines. A proud member benefit of the State Bar of Texas, LawPay is trusted by more than 50,000 lawyers and integrated with more than 30 practice management solutions. Schedule a demo today at lawpay.com forward slash Texas demo. Welcome to the State Bar of Texas podcast, your monthly source for conversations and curated content to improve your law practice with your host, Rocky Deer. Hi, welcome to another adventure on the State Bar of Texas podcast. Today, our journey takes us somewhere none of us has ever been, inside the mind of Mike Ferris. Mike is a Dallas entertainment attorney who has achieved the dream of becoming a published author, several times over, in fact. How did he do it? How can we do it? Well, let's find out. Mike Ferris, welcome. Thanks, Rocky. It's good to be here. Well, I, Mike, I hope you have a very open mind today, because there's a bunch of us that are going to be walking around in it for the next 40 minutes or so. I have a very open mind. I just have to make sure that nothing falls out. You know, you and me both. You and me both. Luckily, nobody ever wants inside my head, so if there's stuff moving around in there, nobody really cares. But, but yours is a different story. So, gosh, how many books have you published at this point? Give us an idea. I've published 12 at this point. Now, one of those was a pure ghostwriting assignment. So although I'm credited in the acknowledgments as an editor, I don't have my name on the book itself, but I have 11 where I'm the author. Wow. And what got you interested in writing as opposed to... Before, you you were an entertainment lawyer, so you litigated, right? Right. I, I've always been interested in books. Uh, when I was a kid, I was a big Hardy Boys fan. In fact, every year for Christmas and my birthday, my mother would take me to a Kmart uh, in Oak Cliff. We lived I in, remember Kmart. We lived in Duncanville at the time. We'd go to the Kmart in Oak Cliff, and I could pick out two Hardy Boy books every year, Christmas, my birthday. So I grew up reading loved to read, and actually first started writing a little bit of creative writing when I was in junior high school, but never seriously until about 15, 20 years ago. Now, it's it's interesting, you know, for, you can't see it from, from where you're sitting as a listener, but I'm actually sitting here in Mike's home office, his home office study, and the walls are literally lined with books. And I, I don't mean like ebooks. I don't mean like on a Kindle or on your iPad. I mean, it's, it's shelves of books. And apparently, this is just the tip of the iceberg, right? Yeah, I have about 20 boxes of books up in the attic because they won't fit on the shelves. I have another room in the house that has about four or five bookshelves also full of books. Any of these rare books, or are they... Uh, none of them are book? really rare books. I think the closest thing I have to some rare books is I actually have a set of what were called the Waverly novels. I've heard of those. I'm okay. old enough to remember that. Well, the reason why I have those is because when I was in, in uh, graduate school, I worked in the summers uh, moving furniture, and we moved a guy who had a box of books that he was throwing out, and I asked him if I could have them, and he gave them to me, and I took them home, and they're still on my bookshelf. Wow. Now... Now, Mike, I remember in February of 2017, reading in the Texas Bar Journal, there was a book review, one of your books. It was A Death in the Islands. Right. Now, if you would, the book review kind of tells us the backdrop, but can you give us maybe the the really abridged version of what the background is? But what I really want to know is, what got you interested in writing about that particular topic? Let's let's explore that a little bit. Okay, let's start with the background on it. Sure. In, in 1931, a young naval lieutenant's wife in Honolulu uh, claimed that she had been assaulted and raped by five Hawaiian boys. Five young men were arrested, brought to trial. 
the jury was out for 96 hours before they declared a hung jury, but it was clear from the evidence that not only had they not done it, there was a strong chance that the woman had never been assaulted in the first place. But while they were out pending a retrial, the uh, supposed victim's husband, mother, and two sailors kidnapped one of these guys who were out on bond, tried to coerce a confession out of him, and in the process, they killed him. And this is one of the defendants. One of the defendants. They killed Mm -hmm. one of the defendants, and they were caught then trying to dump his body in the ocean. The supposed victim's mother was a socialite from back east who had come to Honolulu to be with her daughter. Her friends from back home raised money, and they hired Clarence Darrow to come out of retirement and defend the murder charge that was then brought. So this isn't the typical Darrow story, right? Usually we hear of Darrow as as kind of defending the underdog, and y- you would have expected him to be defending the young Hawaiian boys. But in this case, he's actually representing the, he's, the bad person. He, he, in my opinion, Darrow was one of the villains of the story. I actually was surprised uh, because one of the things that he did was he put a witness on the stand to suborn perjury, and he knowingly did that. He was a... What he did was he put the gun that killed the young man in the hand of the husband because the husband was the only one who actually had, under his theory of the honor killing, the right to avenge what had happened to his wife when it actually was one of the sailors who had killed the young man. Darrow knew that the husband had not done it, but put him on the stand to testify that he did it in a in state of insanity. And I've, I have a real problem with that. Tell us about Darrow's theory of the unwritten law. Darrow's theory is that regardless of what actually happened, a husband has the right to avenge the dishonor of his wife. So in this instance, if you believe that these five young men had actually assaulted her, then the husband had the right to avenge what was done, and he should have been acquitted based upon, it basically is jury nullification. And that was what he, he threw to the jury. That would be unheard of today, but back then he, he apparently made this argument with a straight face, thinking that this would fly. He did make it with a straight face. In fact, in his, uh, in his memoir, he even talked about the fact that everybody knew that his clients had done it. And so he was trying, he was trying an insanity defense coupled with the unwritten law defense, hoping to get them off. So it, it, it's interesting. You know, one of the things you were saying was that you had trouble with the way Darrow went about representing his client. So... You know, as lawyers, and especially when you're a young lawyer, you're a law student, you're taught to to zealously defend your client or zealously represent your client. It sounds like you think maybe Darrow overstepped that line, went beyond mere zealousy and did something maybe unethical or I, I think highly unethical. Okay. I think just you know, uh, when you when you understand that Darrow knew that one of the sailors had actually killed Joseph Kahawai was a young man who was killed. When you understand that Darrow knew that it was one of the sailors who had killed Joe and not Tommy Massey, the husband of the supposed victim, yet got Tommy Massey to get on the stand and say that he had the gun and he's the one who killed Joe, I, that's, that's highly unethical, may even be criminal behavior. What got you interested in this particular topic? And not only that, what then got you to say, I'm going to sit down and, and write a thick book about it? I mean, we're talking... We're talking hundreds of pages. Yeah, it's about 350 pages Good on the Lord. book. It, my wife and I love Hawaii. We visited there, I think we've been 15 or 16 times. But about 20 years ago, we were in a bookstore in Hilo on the Big Island called okay. Basically Books. And I found a paperback book that was written in 1966 called Rape in Paradise uh, by mm-hmm. a journalist who had actually sat through the trial in 1932. 
And I was fascinated by the story, but I just kind of let it sit for a while. But over time, I was more and more drawn to that story. What I realized was there have been five books written about it. Three were published in 1966. Hmm. Two were published in the early 2000s, but none were written... Three were written by journalists, two were written by professors, so the ones by journalists read like a newspaper article, the ones by professors read like academics, and what I wanted to do was to tell the story to a more commercial audience, to a wider audience. So I actually wrote the book in the style of a novel, uh, similar to, I'd say, In Cold Blood, where Truman Capote took a true story, but in effect novelized the telling of it, not the facts, but the telling of it. To make it read more like fiction, even though it's true. Even though it's true. But I also had the benefit of, I had there were two trials, the rape trial, the murder trial. I had the trial transcripts. Uh, when all was said and done, the Pinkerton Detective Agency came out and did a, a huge investigation because after the murder trial, the prosecutor had to decide whether or not to retry the rape case, which had had a hung jury. So they hired the Pinkertons to do that, and the Pinkertons came out with a 280-some-odd page report. I got access to that. I got access to police interviews, witness statements, uh, contemporary newspaper articles. So I was able to put the facts into the story, but tell it in the style of a novel. When did you start writing this? Like what year? Um, 2016. Uh, It must have been probably late 2015. The book was published at the end of 2016. So at this point, did you you have a day job or was this what you did all day when you were an author? I was practicing law at the time. All right. So this is, I think for many of us, this might be the really... The fascinating story behind the story. So you're, you're a practicing lawyer, right? You've got hours to bill. You've got fees to collect. You've got all that stuff that lawyers deal with. But then you're reading trial transcripts on a case that you're not getting paid on. And then you're, you're reading the, this 250-page Pinkerton report. And then at some point, you sit down and type out a 350-page novel. How did you, how'd you get the time to do this? Well, I have found over the years that when you really love doing something, you find the time for it. And this uh, was your passion, was this writing. This was my passion, was, was writing and to tell this particular story. Now, this obviously was not your first book. Correct. Bethany Islands was not. What was your first? My first book was a book called Manifest Intent. Okay. When I wrote it, I couldn't get it published. But over the years, I sort of taught myself. I learned, learned how to rewrite, learned how to structure stories, and ultimately was able to get uh, my first book published, I think, in about 2003, 2004, something like that. Then went back and reworked Manifest Intent and ultimately got it published. Now, so you started writing Manifest Intent in, you said, about... I guess this was in the late 90s? Maybe? It was in the late 90s, is, is best I can recall, because like I said, it sat for quite a while before I went back and reworked it and then I was got say, it best I can recall, I, this is not a Senate panel. <laughs> it's not, no, but I'm also at that age where <laughs> recalling sometimes is a chore. I, I, I feel you there. So late 90s, at this point, you're clearly in the midst of your law practice, and so you made this decision to start writing. Did you have a passion for writing at that point, or... Did you sort of make a decision that I'm gonna I'm gonna just leap and do this? Uh, I did have a passion for writing, and actually, at that by the by the late '90s, I had actually stepped away from law practice for a while. So it must have been more like the mid '90s when I started this book, because I was still I was a partner at Vile Hamilton Coke and Knox when I wrote the book. Sure, uh, but then at the latter part of the '90s, I basically had my first retirement from law practice. Uh, and spent time with my wife traveling and doing some other writing and things like that, and then went back to law practice. So when, when you were a practicing lawyer, can you, again, if you can recall, Senator, <laughs> you know, can, you, 
can you walk us through maybe your typical daily schedule, right? You go to work and then you have to write. Tell us about how you structured your 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 days and your weeks around writing. Yeah, back then I did my writing in the evenings. I was, uh, like I said, at Vile Hamilton, Coke and Knox. I did surety and fidelity practice. So it was a business litigation practice. Sure. So on any given day, you had depositions, court appearances, or you were in the office doing research. So I wrote in the evenings. Now, when I got into the 2000s and was uh, practicing with a different firm, I would get up early in the morning and try to spend an hour to an hour and a half each morning writing. Uh, now, I just kind of do it when the spirit moves me. So when you say each morning, then does this also include weekends? Did you Were your weekends taken up with writing, or did you manage to do other things? It, sometimes on weekends, sometimes not. I was never a person who had a rigid structure of when I had to write. And, you know, I know some people who have yeah. hours set aside during the day and they write every day. I can't do that. I have to f- be in the mood. I have to feel like it. Got to feel the muse at that point, right? Because if you don't, then what are you going to write about it? That, that, that's what I would struggle with. It's If I set aside 7 to 9 a.m. to write and I'm not feeling it, I'll be sitting there surfing the internet. Right, and and I also have to have sort of a, a a block of time set aside, an undisturbed block of time. I'm not one of these people who can sit down and write for 30 minutes and then go do something and come back. And uh, you know, I've told people before I might have half a day set aside. This is my writing day, and if my wife comes in and asks me to take out the trash, I feel like it's just blown the whole day because it's interrupted my writing process. Which it's an exaggeration, but I can't just do bits and pieces like some people can. So when you write, you're writing for two or three hours just straight. Yes. Get up maybe to refill your water or do something like that. That's it. I do, and I listen to music while I write. Okay. Now, how do you... This is what would scare me about writing a book or even attempting to do it, and I imagine many people would feel the same way. How do you battle the blank page? Right? You've got this this blank computer screen staring at you, and it's a cursor that's blinking very teasingly. How do you... How do you overcome that? Do you just do you just write whatever's in your head, or do you structure it first? Walk I, us through that process. It, it, the reason why I can only write when I feel moved to do it is that very reason. I can't just sit down, This like this is my time to write, and sit down, and I can't think of anything. Because I typically have, it's I've thought it out in my head, I've turned it over, I've come up with ideas, and it reaches a point where, okay, it's time to get it out and put it down on paper. That's when I sit down and write. So I don't know that I've ever sat down in front of the blank page and felt like I've had writer's block, but it's because I have resolved it before I sat down. You've kind of ruminated over it pretty over much. a course of days or weeks or whatever. Pretty much. I, I have told uh, my wife and she told other people about that first book that I wrote, which even though we couldn't get it published for a long time, I basically wrote it in my head during a summer working in the yard. I would go out to mow the yard, and just for an hour or so at a time, I would think about the story idea. It's this house where we're sitting in now, isn't it? Uh, it was a house over in East Dallas. Then. Oh, okay. Yes. Now, my later books, I've written mowing this yard. Okay. So, lesson for all you all you lawyers out there that want to become authors, go go mow your own yard. <laughs> it's an inspiration, and the, the beauty of it is it, it, you'll be surprised how quickly the time passes when you're mowing the yard. And you're, you're thinking about this book. Thinking about it, write. yes. Now, when you do sit down to write, and you've got this book written in your head, do you edit as you go, or are you just writing what's in your head, and then you worry about editing later? I worry about editing later. To me, the most important thing is to get it down on the page. Okay. Uh, I have learned, though, that over the course of doing these things, what I now do in a first draft, it used to take me three or four rewrites to do, mm-hmm. but that's just the process of repetition and learning from trial and error. But I need to get the whole thing out first, and then I'll go back and edit it. 
What would you say is, is, is there a particular challenge that's unique to lawyers when it comes to, because, you know, when, when, when we write in a litigation style, it's a very different style than writing, writing a novel or even historical fiction or a historical account. Is there something lawyers need to kind of train themselves to do or not do when it comes to writing the style of writing that you're doing now? I think so. I think a problem that I've seen in lawyer writing, this is typically unpublished lawyer writing, is they do tend to write like lawyers (laughs) as opposed to write like a novelist telling a story to a commercial audience. The other thing is particularly those who do legal thrillers, legal dramas, they they know what they're writing about, mm. and they, they make one of two mistakes. One is they don't tell the reader enough to really understand what's going on, or they tell the reader too much, which bogs them down in the minutia of litigation practice, negotiation, maneuvering, and things like that. To some extent, do you have to, do you have to take liberties with... I mean, obviously, when you're writing a true historical account, that's different. But if you're, if you're writing something that's maybe fictionalized to some degree, do you take liberties with the rules of procedure and kind of gloss over some of that for the, for the non-lawyer reader? I try not to. I try okay. to, to stick to the rules, at, at least the rules in Texas sure. as I know them. They may be different in other states. But to me, it, it lends to the credibility of the story. Hmm. The last thing you want is to get emails, because I have gotten a couple of emails recently. <laughs> I got one from a guy in Australia, oh. because in my book, Fifty Shades of Black and White, which is nonfiction about a lawsuit that I was involved in, I went to Sydney, Australia, to take depositions, and I got an email from him talking about supposedly enjoying the book, but I misspelled some Australian place names. Oh. I mean... At least he was kind enough to tell you about it, so you know for next time. But he was one of them. One of them, I take him uh, at his word. The other was Sydney Harbor, and I spelled it H A R B O O R, and he said it's actually O U R. And well, we'll just disagree on whether or not I can do the English, the American spelling. We won the war, dang it! Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so here's, let's talk about Fifty Shades because that was actually something I wanted to ask you about because it's an. It's, it's fascinating. I don't know how many people know your involvement with that. So most of us think of Fifty Shades of Grey as a movie showing a lot of skin, right? That's, that's kind of the, the reputation. For you, this was a case that you actually had some skin in. So tell us about this. Right. Fifty Shades of Grey is actually a trilogy. There were three books, Fifty okay. Shades of Grey, Fifty Shades Darker, and Fifty Shades Freed. And all the movies have now come out. So. All the movies have now come out. Those three books were originally published by a company called The Writer's Coffee Shop which was made up of two women in Texas and two women in Australia. They, Again, uh, Australia. There's like, well, that was the case that I was in Australia on. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Uh, but they operated as a partnership in publishing the book, but they never signed a partnership agreement. So when they sold the publishing rights to Random House, which was a three-year deal over the course of three years, Random House would pay 50% of the royalties to the writer's coffee shop and 50% of the royalties to the author. One of the women in Australia took the position that because there was no partnership agreement signed, it was her company. Mm-hmm. And so she signed as the CEO of the Writer's Coffee Shop, but instead of using the partnership employer identification number from the IRS, used her personal tax file number from Australia, gave Random House her bank account information in Sydney, Australia, and then over the course of three years collected something in the neighborhood of $45 million in royalties without accounting to her partners for any of it. So we filed suit in Texas, in, in Tarrant County, to get a declaration that the Writer's Coffee Shop was a partnership. And, and, and why the, Tarrant County? Is that, that's where your client was? My located? client lived in Tarrant County. Okay. Uh, there were a lot of contacts that the Australian 
woman had with Texas. She had actually had been to Texas a number of times. She was promoting Fifty Shades of Grey on WFAA-TV. Uh, at least one of the things that she did that was the subject of the lawsuit was to terminate my client and another woman, did that in Tarrant County. So we sued in Tarrant County, again, for that declaration that, that my client was one of four partners and entitled her share of the profits. And then did the other... Did the other partners step into the lawsuit as well? The others, uh, yes and no. They did not get involved as parties in the lawsuit. The other two actually testified on behalf of the defendant, although their testimony was inconsistent and all over the place. Uh, One of the women testified that there was no partnership and in the next breath was admitting that she had signed documents on behalf of a partnership. The other woman in Australia interestingly, never said that there was no partnership. What she said was when it was all put together, she decided not to be a part of it, which is a far different thing from there is no partnership. Now, the jury ultimately found that she was a partner. So that's why there were four partners found by the jury instead of three. Wow. Now, now was this Tarrant County State Court or were you in federal court? It was in state court. One of the things I wondered about was whether or not they would remove it to federal court, but they didn't. I also anticipated that the the defendant, since the defendant was in Australia, that she might default, which is what I actually anticipated would happen because there's no treaty between the United States and Australia for the enforcement of judgments. And in order to enforce a Texas judgment in Australia, we would have to go to Australia, file a separate proceeding. And one of the things that we would have to establish was that the Australian resident submitted to the jurisdiction of the United States court. Hmm. Had she defaulted, we couldn't have done that. Uh, but she appeared, hired a lawyer, and defended the lawsuit. Any idea why she decided to appear? Don't know. Wow. Now, okay, so that case and that story was obviously something you were personally involved in as an attorney. What about your other topics? How do you go about choosing what you want to write about? Is it always a legal story, or is it something that you just found interesting? Walk us through that process. It varies. Uh, this one obviously was something I was involved in and actually got my, my client to assist in writing the book to tell the lawsuit about the lawsuit from her perspective, but also what had happened from her perspective while I wrote from the perspective of the attorney. But I have, um, I have one book that's historical fiction that is set in World War II Honolulu in what was called Hotel Street, which was the red light district in Honolulu. So it's a factual backdrop of World War II Red Light District in Honolulu. So you had to do your research for that one to see what it was actually like in 1932 in Honolulu and the Red Did Light have District. to do some research for that. Yeah, there's and there's quite a bit of information out there on it. Uh, no books had been written about about Hotel Street. Uh, huh. There were chapters in some books about Hotel Street. I have other other books that I have written where it was just an idea that came to me. There have been others where actually cases that I have worked on things happened which triggered ideas. I'm sitting here trying to think about what I would write. If I get inspired one day to write, I don't know what I would write about. What, what's your advice to an attorney who says, I mean, I know, I know many of them who say, I'd love to write the next great American novel or, you know, get published. What would be your advice for how they choose something to write about? Um, you know, that's going to vary from individual to individual. But sure. I would say, first of all, write something that you're interested in. What is it you like to read? Okay. Uh, those kinds of things typically are going to be best for you to write about, or at least in that genre, because you're familiar with the conventions of it. You're familiar with certain things about it. I also, you hear the adage over and over again, write what you know, mm-hmm. but I have a corollary to that when I teach writing classes, and that is know what you write. 
if you're interested in something, don't be afraid to do research because the historical fiction I wrote, I began doing research about the red light district and the Hotel Street area in World War II. It triggered ideas for the book because I was doing the research. So, you know, write what you know, know what you write, but write what you're interested in, whatever you have a passion for. If you're writing because you're going to be the next John Grisham and and be a millionaire, I would say don't bother. If you're writing because you have a passion for a story, something you feel like you need to tell, that's what you pursue. Is that what you found is true of, say, the Grishams and the Stephen Kings and and these authors? Are they doing the same thing, just writing about things that fascinate them? Or do you know? I think a lot of them get started that way. Hmm. You know, the the story I have heard, and, and I'm... I've not heard anything to the contrary, but John Grisham's book, A Time to Kill, which was the first book he sure. wrote, um, he got the idea from that sitting in a courtroom waiting to be called for a hearing in a case and listening to the hearing that went on before. Hmm. If you think about the book The Firm, which mm-hmm. is about the mob-controlled law firm right. in Memphis, although it's a, it's a thriller, it's a, you know, it's a commercial story, it's a commentary on legal ethics. Right. So, you know, there are things there are things that I think people are passionate about that get them started. Now, what happens is after a while, there are only so many things that you can be passionate about. And then I think you just sort of come up with, all right, what's going to sell? But you've got to be out there in the game first before you can do that. What about the process of getting published? I know you said you had challenges with your first book, getting that published, and then it happened sometime later. How do you think a new author should sort of navigate that that minefield of publication? Because I think most lawyers don't really, we're not familiar with that. We might know how to write, we might have ideas in our heads, but getting that disseminated might be a whole different ball of wax. Yeah, it's not easy. Unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, I don't know how you view it, it is easier to get self-published these days because of sure. the internet and ebooks and things like that. And But I think it depends upon your motivation. If you have a personal story that you just simply want to get out there and you're going to get behind it and promote it, maybe that's the way to go. To self-publish. To self-publish. But I also think that there's a problem with self-publishing for some people because there's no quality control. And so I think if you're, if you're seriously interested in pursuing writing as opposed to, I have this one-shot thing that I want to get out there, I would at least start by trying to get an agent, trying to get a royalty-paying publisher and that's not easy to do, but that would be the where I would start. And one of the things I advise all people who want to write is read, read, read. It's amazing to me how many writers I have talked to in the past or who want to be writers, and they can't even tell you who their favorite author is. They can't tell you what kind of books mm. they like. They just want to, as the saying goes, they want to have written, but they don't really want to learn how to write. Interesting. So I'm trying to think of, and I don't know if you've met any of these you know, highly published authors like J.K. Rowling or John Grisham or any of these folks, I'm trying to get inside their heads and think what they must have been going through when they were first writing their very first books. They didn't know if they're going to get published. They don't know if anybody's going to look at this. So I guess you sort of, you create the art and then you worry about the publishing later? Or I, would you say you do it the opposite way? I, I say create the art and worry about the publishing later. Uh, because if you create the art, then you're doing it because you're an artist. If you worry, and I, which is not to say don't don't understand the world, don't understand the business behind it. Go to writers' conferences, read books, learn about the business of writing. But if all you're interested in is the business as opposed to creating the art, then I think you should go into business. Do you think writing books would make make us better lawyers, or do you think 
do you think being a lawyer helps you write better books? I think it works both ways. I think being a lawyer helps you write better books because lawyers are storytellers. But I have also found that I learned things about storytelling from writing that helps me in litigation, in a presentation of a case, in development of a case. The other thing I've learned is that writing, particularly if you're writing prose, makes you a better legal writer because you shift over a little bit from legalese to what's the best way to communicate what I'm trying to say. And that was actually a question I wanted to ask you. So you, you sort of preempted me, and I'm glad you did, because it's a, this is a debate, I think, sometimes in the legal writing world, is do we write, quote-unquote, like lawyers? I'm, I'm doing the little quote thing with my fingers. But you know, do we write like lawyers? Or in legal briefs, should we try to write more like more as if it is prose. You know, have you experimented with that in your legal briefs back when you were practicing? Did you, did you actually write the facts section of a legal brief as if it was a story? I, I, didn't, I wouldn't say that I've experimented with it, but I, I learned when I started writing books and writing prose, even back when I wasn't being published, that I preferred a plain English style because it doesn't really matter how smart your writing sounds if your reader is not understanding it or not getting the point, then you sort of wasted your time. It's, it's, I think, the same thing when you're arguing a case to a jury. If you get up there and you use $3 words when a 25-cent word will do and, and you've got jurors who can't follow what you're saying, you've sort of undercut your position where that's why I think the best part of jury is uh, jury argument is being able to tell your case like a story. So let's maybe... Think of an illustration. You know, the typical legal brief. Let's say, let's say it's a slip and fall in a mall or something like that. You know, we might say, well, on on January tenth, two thousand nineteen, the plaintiff was walking along what appeared to be a smooth surface and slipped and fell on something invisible, and there was no there was no wet floor sign. The other way would be to say, let's say her name is Jane Doe. Jane Doe woke up in pain, and you kind of start from the you start from the premise of she woke up and then trying to piece together what happened and you turn it into more of a of a compelling narrative, if you will. It may not be what most judges are used to and what most lawyers are used to writing, but maybe it makes it more exciting, you know, or or more thrilling. It, as a lawyer, as a practicing lawyer, which of those two would you adopt if you had to write a brief? I actually sort of came down in the middle on that. Okay. Because I don't want it to be be too much like reading a novel because mm-hmm. You know, so much of, of storytelling and novel telling is you sort of, you've got your twists and turns and, you, you know, spring your surprise twist at the end. I think particularly as much as judges have to read, if a judge can read a paragraph heading or a sentence or two from a paragraph and get the gist of what you're saying, if that's all they read, you just skim through a pleading and read the first paragraph or the first part of each paragraph, then you're halfway there. So I sort of fall in the middle of that. So you're not going for readability, you're going for skimability. Pretty much, pretty much, but, but skimability and, and understandability. Okay. But God, if, the most important thing is that they be able to understand what you're saying. If you can be clear and concise, that's half the battle. But you want to be able to do that quickly. Yes. Or, or rather, the reader needs to be able to do that quickly, because they're, they're trying to digest information. Yes. In, exactly. a, in, in very rapid fire. Does it matter which court you're in front of? It so matters for, absolutely which court you're in front of, and you need to sort of learn the judges, what the judge's style is, what the judge is like. I, I, I have been given to understand there are judges who want 
legal writing to read like legal writing. But that's also part of being a lawyer is every time you get a, a new case, you learn as much as you can about the judge and you learn as much as you can about the other lawyer. You learn as much as you can about the case, but you have to sort of adapt your style to what your audience is. So let's say we're many decades into the future and you look back on your life. Would you want to be described as Mike Ferris attorney, Mike Ferris author? What's your identity? Are you more of a writer or are you more of an attorney? Oh, gosh, that's a tough question. Uh, I, we ask tough questions here. Uh, you do. <laughs> I certainly don't, I, I don't find my, my identity wrapped up in being a lawyer. Okay. I think I've enjoyed being a lawyer sometimes. I sure. have not enjoyed being a lawyer sometimes. I would much rather just simply be known as, I don't know, somebody, a nice guy. <laughs> Mike Ferris, a nice guy who wrote a lot of books. I, I could go with that. I could go with that. How many more books do you think you have in you? Oh, gosh, I've got research in right now for two nonfiction books that I'll probably get started on, at least one of them. I've got to decide which one I want to do, uh, get started on this year, probably this spring. And I have outlines for about three or four other novels uh, in file folders. And then, you know, who knows? Can you give us a teaser as to what maybe some of these books would be about without revealing too much? Because obviously we want people to read the books. I can. The, the two nonfiction books that I've done research on, one is it was sort of inspired by my novel, which was called um, Isle of Broken Dreams, which is the one that was set in World War II Honolulu. Sure. On Hotel Street. On Hotel Street. But to actually do a nonfiction book about that world of Hotel Street, the red light district in Honolulu, there is a character in my book, Isle of Broken Dreams, that was inspired by a notorious prostitute in Honolulu named Jean O'Hara who had literally had a feud with the vice squad of the police department, and she was at one point set up and charged with attempted murder. So I have information about that case, but I also want to write about the nonfiction world surrounding it, sort of set the context of what that case was about. Is this going to be about Jean O'Hara, or is it going to be more about some other characters in that story? Both. It's going to be about how, basically, the world of prostitution in Honolulu, particularly during the war, and how it sort of developed. But it's an incredibly interesting world. The prostitutes actually went on strike at one point. Really? Because the provost marshal, after martial law was declared, was freezing the price that they charged, and they wanted to raise their prices, so they went on strike. I got to say, you know, you know, Mike, having met you, you seem like a pretty straight-laced guy. And now you're going to be writing this whole book about prostitution, which I think is, it's, it's fascinating. You're, you're able to explore that world and yet still be this, this upstanding lawyer. It's, it's, a, it's this juxtaposition. Do you ever find yourself stepping back and saying, whoa, look at my life. I'm, I'm kind of got a feet in several different worlds. Yeah, it's interesting. My, my mother-in-law, when she read my book, Isle of Broken Dreams, which is sort of shocked uh, and I had explained to her, look, it's called research. You know, it's not like I've actually <laughs> been there. But, but I think there are human stories to be told in that world. The world of prostitution in, in Honolulu, a lot of it was, was white slavery. Mm. And so the idea I came up with was a young woman coming to Honolulu thinking she's going to be an entertainer, she's going to be a singer, she has all these aspirations, and gets trapped into this world of prostitution uh, and her struggle to get out before it basically ruins her soul. There are stories like that happening today too, right? Absolutely. This is a this is as much a contemporary story as it Absolutely. as it was from the 1930s. And that's the thing that touched me about the story, it sort of gave gave rise to the idea of this character who 
she's in and she's fighting for her very soul. Do you think you're ever going to stop writing? Um, I as long as I love it, no. You just keep on keeping on. I I just enjoy it. To me, it's it's fun. It's fun to create characters. It's fun to create worlds. Uh, I started out writing fiction, but I've gotten more into nonfiction these days. The other nonfiction book that I have in mind is is uh, the story of the. The Japanese in Hawaii who were placed in internment camps during World War II. Okay. There's a lot told sure. generally about the internment camps, but very little about what happened in Hawaii. That should be a fascinating read, too. And it's for darker reasons, but it is a very fascinating period yeah. of, our, of our collective history. It is, and it was actually an event in Hawaii that triggered the executive order uh, wow. that Roosevelt signed. There was a, a, uh, a privately held island in Hawaii called Niihau. And a Japanese Zero that was shot up during the Pearl Harbor attack crash-landed on Niihau and convinced the Japanese-American storekeeper on the island who ran it for the Robinson family who owned it uh, to help him escape. He thought he was going to make his way to the coast and be picked up by a submarine and for a period of three or four days held the residents of that island, basically terrorized him until he was caught and killed. But the actions of the Japanese storekeeper and his wife were pointed out to the president as examples of how you couldn't trust Japanese, even if they were Japanese-American, wow. which led to the executive order. Wow. I'm looking forward to that book. Now, for people that want to kind of keep up with you, you know, maybe contact you and, and, and learn a little bit more about writing, what's the best way to keep up with you, you know, stay in touch with you? How should people... Get in touch with Mike Ferris. Sure. Um, I have a Facebook page. Uh, can get in touch with me through Facebook. I also have a website, which is just michaelferris.net. Okay, so either one of those. Yes. Okay, well, well very well. You, you know, this is unfortunately all the time we have for today. And I tell you, time flies. You know, Mike, I could talk about this all day. I want to thank Mike Ferris for joining us and allowing us to take a tour in the inside of his head. Mike, this has been fascinating. Well, thank you. I hope it wasn't too scary in there. No, no, it was, it was, it was great. I spent all day. And of course, I want to thank you, the listener, for tuning in. And of course, the good folks at Legal Talk Network for helping us sound so good. And we can never forget LawPay and their generous support of this podcast. You rock, LawPay! If you like what you heard today, please rate, review, and subscribe to us in Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. Until next time, remember, life's a journey, folks. I'm Rocky Deer, signing off for now. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Go to TexasBar.com slash podcasts. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts and RSS. Find both the State Bar of Texas and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Or download the free app from Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, the State Bar of Texas, Legal Talk Network, or their respective officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, or subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.